Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hey, good morning, John. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Doing pretty good. I uh, was uh, sitting around thinking about our podcast for today, and and I was reflecting back on um, on my days when I was a school teacher before I went to law school. You know, I stood that post for five years. In fact, I just got my uh, teacher retirement services retirement update. I was reflecting on those days. It was, uh, it, I guess, it was a leaner time, is one way to put it. But thinking about it. And thinking about those days uh, made me start thinking about the citations that we often see in Region 6. Have you ever seen the one that says ineffective training? Oh, Frank, that's getting to be a very, very, very common citation. And if it's not that citation, when you're negotiating with the area office and trying to work out a resolution on behalf of the client, we've been hearing a lot of stories, or at least I've been hearing a lot of stories about how training has not been, as OSHA perceives it, all that terribly effective. Yeah, you know, and I think part of that is from the walk around and the employee interviews, when they uh, reach out to those employees and and say, "Okay, please describe to me your Hascom training." Have you uh, gotten to debrief any employee after that? Oh yeah, and it, it's not just been the employees that have struggled with those types of questions. It's also been some of the supervisors, the, the, the foremen or leads or, or whatever the term might be, and, and they too struggle with it. And, and you know, OSHA's perspective, at least in the interviews that, or, or excuse me, in the inspections that I've had lately where this has been an issue has been, well, if you're, you know, frontline management can't articulate it and your worker bees can't articulate it, is it any good? You know, that's frustrating to me because when you're prepping employees and you ask them, uh, what are your job duties? That's one of the hardest questions they have to answer. <laughs> what are my job duties? Well, everything I do every day. Exactly. Uh, but but it's kind of the same question. What's your training? Uh, what, tell, tell me, tell me uh, what your training was on this. I think it's hard for people to put those things into words. And, and I think it's an unfair question in a way because they're not prepared to answer something that seems so obvious to them. Right. And I also think that, and, and, and this is, you know, we could go down this rabbit trail forever. So I'm, I want to try to keep this kind of tight, but you know, this is where preparation for interviews is important because when somebody's asked a question like that, you know, a lot of times people, I mean, first of all, they're in a situation that's nerve wracking. They're talking to a government official, maybe somebody who's flashed a badge at them. And then they're asked a very, very broad, open-ended question like, tell me about your HASCOM training. Well, you know, where should I stop? Where should I end? You know, do you really want to know, you know, where we keep our SDSs? You know, I don't even know what that question is. And so, yeah, that, that can be a real challenge for our, our clients and, and their employees. But, you know, in, in deference to OSHA's conclusions, uh, I was thinking about, well, what would be uh, an effective way to teach? And I started reflecting back on the teacher training that, that I received coming up. And 
You know, I was thinking about the different learning styles. I know that there's there's a debate and current dispute over whether there are different learning styles. I haven't been in the classroom. I I think it's just undeniable that there are different learning styles. And I think people learn better on a certain modality. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, auditory is one of the learning styles and people that learn better by hearing. I found students with dyslexia could hear something one time and remember it forever in perpetuity. You know, those auditory learners are kind of a rare breed, but they really they really can pick up just straight lecture. But that's, that's a very small percentage of the population. Uh, a larger percentage of the population is visual learner. They're visual learners. So videos and seeing something written down or even seeing it demonstrated, they tend to retain better. Uh, and so, you know, when we're talking about videos and retention and learning the workplace where they're situated, then ideally you would have a video or you would have uh, examples of practices that are reminiscent of the work in that workplace or actually are videos of that workplace. A good example of a, of a good workplace video, if you're going to use videos, would be forklift training, for instance, where you're identifying the, the hazards in that a forklift driver is actually going to face. And then the third type of learner we had was a tactile learner. And those are folks that uh, tended to do better if, if they were somehow engaged, maybe writing notes, uh, maybe doing some type of, of exercise uh, in writing to help them retain the information. And then the fourth type is the kinesthetic, right? Uh, those, those folks uh, like me that had some tendencies toward uh, attention deficit issues uh, they like to move around a little bit, very hard to sit in one spot for a very long period of time. And sometimes you could combine tactile kinesthetic learners into one where they're actually doing and writing and actually having an experience uh, instead of just uh, watching and listening to a lecture. Let me ask you what type of learner I am. I'm the type of learner who you can tell me all day long how to do something, but in, and I can sit in videos and watch videos or I can... I can, you know, all that classroom learning in terms of things where we're actually executing on it, whether it's legal stuff or, you know, working on a piece of equipment or something like that, until I'm actually doing it, I don't really internalize and absorb it. So what type of learner is that? Yeah, that makes you tactile kinesthetic. I would have predicted, I would have predicted that before you described yourself uh, because I think we're real similar in nature. Uh, we, we have to be doing otherwise it's more difficult for us to learn. Uh, I mean, even even if you're in a uh, in a in a lecture where it's uh, mostly listening and and watching, uh, I mean, we're we're the people that got in trouble. Probably, I'm guessing you did. I know I did. Got in trouble because you couldn't just sit and listen. You had to you had to sound off and participate at some yeah. level, even yeah. when it wasn't welcome. And it's distracting for those that are auditory or visual learners, but those tactile kinesthetic learners, especially with uh, with, with any type of attention disorder, Issue. yeah, attention deficit disorder, ADD, ADHD, I think uh, they've got to be engaged a little bit differently. So what we used to do, what I used to do, I shouldn't say we, not everybody did the way I did it, but what I, I would try to do is I would try to come up with lesson plans that would touch on all those modes especially with students that I didn't know well. After you get to know a student pretty well, you, you, you can pinpoint where they are. But 
when you're bringing in a bunch of uh, incoming freshmen or a, or a bunch of brand new employees, the uh, the approach I think needs to be a little broader to where you're able to pick out the strengths of those learners, and and truthfully, it, it helps everybody to exercise different mental muscles, as it were, as they're as they're learning uh, new material. I think it helps it helps them retain it better and makes it better for recall. So now, Frank, let me stop you there because that kind of raises a question. So we've got an employer, let's say, you know, somebody up in the like Henderson, Texas area, kind of remote, kind of rural, not not entirely rural because Henderson's a decent sized town. They've got 20 people in a facility. They've got, you know, kind of a, a plant manager type person and, and maybe, you know, a, a, a supervisor or two and then the rest are, are the worker bees. So how does an employer engage in these kind of multiple ways of, of learning or multiple ways of educating or informing employees in, in that type of environment where it's just, it's not a very big place. There's not an enormous amount of bodies in terms of resources. And, and you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, out on the frontier, so to speak, away from, you know, the, the main operations, the, the mothership, so to speak. What, what do you have in terms of recommendations for that type of employer and, and making sure that these multiple modes of training are, are actually implemented? So I think there's a real advantage to being in that situation where you're in a smaller facility with probably a smaller training class, uh, telling them about, uh, you know, what they're going to find out on the floor. Right. Uh, say it's a manufacturing facility. Say this is what you're going to find out there. Here, here are the, the the safety programs we're going to discuss today. Let's say it's um, let's say it's lockout tagout today. We're going to talk about lockout tagout today, and um, and that you can talk it through. Maybe even have a a PowerPoint presentation uh, about how to how to read the energy control procedures and and what the locks look like, and then you can actually put the locks in their hands while you're sitting in that training room, uh, talk about uh, how to how to fill out any labels you need to put on the locks or ident- make them personally identifiable, how to maintain the keys, or if you're using a lock box with one lock, uh, uh, you know, a multi-hasp, wh- whatever, whatever the devices are that are part of the lockout program, you can introduce them there. And then in a small situation, uh, you might be able to take them right out on the floor and and let them watch real live uh, authorized employees uh, in action locking out a piece of equipment. Maybe requires a little bit of a planning in advance, but I mean, what would what's a better example than being out there and seeing it? And if if you've got some learners there that are, and maybe you do it with all of them, right? After you've gone through the training, let them let them each follow the checklist of energy control procedure and lock out the equipment just so they get some firsthand experience doing it. And, and in that way you've, you've touched on, on all modes of, of training. Uh, you've, you've done the audio, you've done the visual, you've done tactile kinesthetic and, and they've gotten the, the full immersion. It, it takes a little extra time, but in a small environment like that, it couldn't take very much extra time to do that training, and that's much more effective training. Then, whenever they're asked about that by by anybody down the road, you know, what was your training? Well, all I remember is they they lectured us, and then they took us out on the floor, and they had us practice it. That's 
that's a better answer than I've ever heard, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's certainly a lot better than some of the answers I've heard. Well, uh, look, let, let, let's continue this dialogue and let's let's flip it a little bit. So you've got the facility in the Metroplex someplace. There's a, a thousand people on the shop floor. Should be multiple layers of management, half a dozen safety personnel, you know, maybe a corporate level safety person there. And you're not able to give that sort of individualized attention, that individualized learning. So in a, in a situation like that, especially we're going through, I'm going to stay with the lockout tagout uh, example. Sure. That makes good sense, I think. Yeah. Uh, in a situation like that, we're we are adding a lot of new authorized employees to your workforce, for instance. Uh, and maybe you're doing so on a regular basis because you've got a big enough manufacturing facility and a large area where where you need plenty of maintenance personnel or operators that need to have uh, authority to lock out equipment to focus on the audio and, and visual learning modes uh, in the classroom setting, still introducing them to the, the pieces of lockout equipment that you would expect them to find. But as part of that training, uh, instead of taking them on the floor to watch a lockout in process, try to create a, a good in-house video of following the energy control procedures to lock out a piece of equipment. And then from there, uh, and I would, I would probably call the classroom training good at that point, but from there, I would be interested in, in doing some guided practice with them in an OTJ or on-the-job training, OJT, sorry, uh, on-the-job training uh, situation where, where they get assigned to um, a competent, experienced, authorized employee mentor, and they get the opportunity to, to demonstrate through guided practice that they're able to follow the energy control procedures, able to read them and identify where to, where to de-energize and lock out the equipment. Ideally, you and I talk about this all the time, would document that guided practice, would document that that specific training was being performed uh, with that mentor overseeing the guided practice. And why do we document, Frank? Because OSHA doesn't believe it happened if it's not documented. <laughs> That's right. The area director once said to me, Frank, uh, you know, I believe you, but how do I really know what happens if it's not written down? Yeah, and, and honestly. It's a good question. I was going to say, you can't blame the question being raised. From the standpoint of the training, uh, from the standpoint of the education, you know, as, as we've talked about, you know, we're hearing more and more during informal conferences, negotiations with OSHA, et cetera, that, you know, they've looked at the training, they, they, they talked to folks, and they don't believe that folks understood, they don't believe that folks internalized, whatever term the, the, the person you're talking to uses, but that the person ultimately, at the end of the day, who's performing the work, didn't understand or didn't appreciate what the uh, expectations were, what the process was, what what the, the the requirements were, et cetera. And so, how you know, one of the things that, that we've talked about in 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 some of those conversations is, you know, you gave them a test. You know, it's ten questions. They're they're really kind of light, fluffy. Don't really drill into knowledge. So, so how does an employer establish and document the fact that the person took it and when they took it, they actually understood it? That's a great question. And I'll tie it back to 
what we used to call independent practice uh, as as school teachers. Uh, everybody else calls it homework uh, and and checking that homework. So what we what we did as teachers is would send, for instance, a math homework sheet. Would send that math homework sheet home with the student. They'd bring it back and would grade it to check it for understanding. In the workplace, you know, you don't send homework home because you've got all kinds of FLSA issues in, right, with, uh, with, with pay. But what we can do is inspect, detect, and correct. That's all part of the training. So once you've, you've got somebody trained through the classroom, once they've demonstrated competence through guided practice and they're off on their own, uh, then it's time to, to follow up and, and check on them working independently and verify that they understand what the procedures are what the safety rules are um, by uh, by well by inspecting them right and documenting that. So for somebody who, for a new employee after they've finished their finished their classroom training uh, and maybe their guided practice with their mentor for locking out equipment, then the next step is when when they get assigned to repair a piece of equipment, uh, you, you go and you verify that they've locked it out properly. Uh, maybe even ask them questions about it, and then document that they've that they've uh, locked it out correctly. And then there's the evidence that they've not only received the training, but that they've understood it and they've effectively implemented it. And hold that it, is, hold it, hold it, Frank, Frank. We have to talk to our employees and make sure that they understood <laughs> what they were trained on. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I have yet to see a citation for ineffective training when the employer took that that last step to follow up and and ensure that uh, there was employee understanding. It also goes to a defense that we often raise. It's not really an affirmative defense because OSHA has to prove knowledge, but but if an employee does fail to follow a safety procedure or does fail to follow a safety rule. If we have evidence that we've caught them doing it correctly in the past, that's some evidence that we can use to say, look, we had no knowledge that they were going to fail to to follow the safety rule in the future because we have evidence that they've been doing it in the past. And again, that's something that a lot of times is missing out of an employer's training file is that they've followed up to verify understanding by the employee. You know, Frank, it, it raises an issue and, and, you know, it's one of those things that was being a little bit cheeky with my last comment, but, you know, I think in a lot of places that we work with a lot of the, the clients that we work with and a lot of those workplaces, you know, my experience has been, there's not necessarily a lot of interaction between you know, managers and worker bees. And, you know, one of the things that I've found in those workplaces where there is a, a relatively high level of interaction is folks are much more comfortable talking with people in positions of authority. And as a consequence, when they end up talking with the compliance officer during the course of the inspection, they're much more comfortable with that conversation, that dialogue, just because they're you know relatively comfortable talking with folks in positions of authority. And I think, you know, in addition to making sure or verifying that the training was effective, that people actually understand their work, et cetera, I think it also gives the employer an advantage in as much as you kind of are almost prepping folks for those interviews if they ever come. You know, and that's another good point too that you, that you raise, right? It gives that employee confidence that they're doing it right. Uh, you know, um, people generally think of me as 
confident, I think. But I do appreciate the feedback when somebody tells me I nailed it, right? That's what I wanted, That right? And um, I really do, because well, you I never mean, know look, for sure. You never know yeah. for sure unless they tell you. And look, I, likewise, not only do I want to hear that I've nailed it, but if you don't want me to take a certain path or if you don't like what I've done or if you would prefer me take a different course, I want to hear that as well. I'm, I, I tell folks this all the time. I have a crystal ball, but it's so cloudy, it looks like a bowling ball. So don't expect me <laughs> to know what's on your mind. And, and feedback for everybody is important. I think that's right. And, and uh, I think there's a lack of it uh, in general uh, because day to day, we all get so busy. Uh, if it's not a problem, uh, we forget to, to reward the good work. Uh, often, I think we often forget to reward the good work, and and we typically just focus on the problem. You well, know, the, the the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and that's unfortunate because the the wheel that's turning smoothly ought to be uh, reinforced for turning smoothly as well. Oh, absolutely! But I, I also think that in not having those dialogues, we also don't have an opportunity, or we or we give up opportunities. Maybe is a better way of saying it to determine when we have folks that need a little hand up. I mean, the fact that somebody didn't understand some, I mean, I, I'm a perfect example of this. I remember one of my first jobs was uh, in a feed mill. And, you know, my boss would tell me to go do something. And, you know, he's talking to me with, you know, the, the benefit of having been the owner of the feed mill for 40 years or whatever it was at that point in time, knowing where, you know, every screw and nail in the place was. And he's telling me, you know, go get something over from that place, take it over to that place and, and, and do this with it. And, and until I was actually kind of walking through it, it was I mean, I'd write everything down because I couldn't remember it all because it didn't make sense to be just telling me in the abstract. And, and, and you know, folks need help sometimes. And there, there's nothing wrong with not making them ask for help and instead offering it because in your conversations with them, it becomes apparent they need some help. But it's a good point, right? Being open to conversation, having that open dialogue, it creates confidence and it relaxes folks and it makes them more effective. Also, you know, the whole open door. And in fact, our next podcast is going to be about the uh, uh, the OSHA Labor Board initiative to work together to try to unionize more plants. Uh, and one of the main ways that we avoid bringing in outsiders is by having good open communications between uh, our employees and our supervisors. And so we'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. Well, Frank, we have probably about exhausted the attention span of our audience. That's right. Riffing on what we were talking about earlier. You and I have talked about on many occasions in the past, this is becoming a more and more prevalent issue. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I think the only place I'm really seeing the level of attention to this issue is region six. There's, there's always random cases popping up here and there where it's an issue, but region six does seem to be really focused on not only are folks giving the training that standards call for or that the work activity calls for, but are their employees actually understanding it? And um, I, I think this has been a great conversation. As always, you and I could probably go on way beyond where we've gone. But I think for the, the sanity of our audience, we probably need to call it a day. Uh, sounds good to me. Uh, maybe uh, m maybe we can uh, in engage in the discussion further uh, if uh, we get follow-up questions from the folks that listen to this. 
And uh, Frank, I think with that, I shall bid you adieu. <laughs> and adieu to you. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.